panorama of the Bible. He's an excellent teacher, and that class, I think, is going to go eight, nine, ten weeks, somewhere in there. So um, it would be a really good thing for you to be able to be part of that. It would give you a broad overview of how Scripture works together. We shared with you um, a few weeks ago some of the top projects that we have as things that we're trying to get done in the facilities around here, um, ways that you can participate in it in a list. We're going to add one more thing to that this week in that um, our lawnmower broke yesterday, and uh, we need to do some repairs on that. You know, when you have a zero-turn radius mower, it's really hard to mow when it just mows in circles, and it keeps going around. <laughs> That's what it started doing yesterday. So we got part of the lawn mowed yesterday, and then it broke, and so... Um, but in your giving, as you remember, th- that we're uh, trying to do some of the projects around here, improving the facility, adding carpet in here in the auditorium to finish the rest of the projects. Um, remember that on that little envelope that you have with the building projects. That's what that represents, uh, that we have some miscellaneous items we're trying to fix around here. And in your giving, we have offering boxes in the back of the church. We don't have a traditional offering plate passed here in the church, but rather offering boxes in the back. I have been really looking forward to uh, teaching this week. I don't know why, I just had this joy bubbling over in me. I love teaching to this body, but especially this week, it just kind of welled up inside me, realizing how God is bringing all this text together and illuminating our minds and helping us to understand. As we enter into Genesis chapter 18 this morning, I want to ask you a question, man or woman, boy or girl, What would be one characteristic, one trait that your father passed on to you that you can just kind of bank away in the back of your mind? If I had to hang a hook on it, that's one thing I would say I learned from my dad. For me personally, I learned a strong work ethic. My dad was a hard, hard worker, and uh, I, I understood what it meant. Um, worked my way through college in a foundry working third shift so I could get through flight school. Trying to pay for aviation was very expensive, and I, I did the hard thing working through foundries, um, pouring hot lava metal, and coming home at 3 in the morning, and I stunk like sulfur, and my dad, you know, trying to get me to change my clothes out in the garage, and I would whine to him about how miserable it was, and he would say, oh, you poor baby. How would you like to do that for 40 years? And I just got no sympathy on him because he understood the value of a strong work ethic. So that'd be one thing I could hang out. I would like to ask you to just bank that away in the back of your mind as we work through this message today. What would be one characteristic, one trait, if you had that kind of a relationship with your dad that he built into your life? There's two plot lines that take place in Genesis chapter 18. And as we look into it, you're going to see them emerge. I'm surprised no one has ever taken this story and made it into a Hollywood movie. It has all the makings of a blockbuster. It's very powerful what unfolds in Genesis chapter 18 as it leads into the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three cities of the plain. And we can't get all the way into the destruction of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19 today. We're going to get partway through 18 because it's such a complex story in the things that take place. But Abram, in this story, is serving visitors that have come into his household, and he doesn't know who they are. He's unaware that they've come from heaven. He just believes that they're common, ordinary travelers. And at the same time, 
that he's entertaining these guests in his home. Taking place down in the valley is the last 24 hours of life on earth for the inhabitants of four major cities we most characteristically call Sodom and Gomorrah. And as they celebrate and live unaware of what's going on, Abram's put in a position in which he's asked internally to intercede on behalf of those people. And you'll see that unfolding as we move through. How did we get to this point? You might remember all the way back in Genesis 13 that Lot chose to separate himself from Abraham and move to an entirely new region. Genesis 13.10 says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan that was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. That last sentence is a really good one to hang on because that's what it potentially looked like. A beautiful, lush valley. It's no wonder that Lot was attracted to move there. He was a herdsman. He was a keeper of livestock. And he moved to an area where he could take care of his crops, take care of his crops, which were livestock. This is a beautiful area before the Lord destroyed it. So that's how we get to where we're at today in Genesis 18, in that Lot's living in one area, Abram's living in another area, up on a hill, and he can look down and see the valley in which lay the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So look with me, if you will, at Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, if in your Bible it says Lord, capital L, that's correct there. We get an insight before Abraham gets an insight into who this is. Lord there is not Adonai, it's Lord Yehovah. That's the way it's pronounced in the, in the Hebrew. So now the Lord, Jehovah, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. This is an important comment in the very beginning of the story so that we understand exactly who Abraham is dealing with. And Abram's taking a siesta. I lived in Arizona for a couple years. I know how valuable it is to people who live in the hot desert region to take a break in the middle of the afternoon because it's too hot to work. And that's what you find Abraham doing. He's taking a siesta in the middle of the day. And these three strangers, he has no idea who they are, come in from the distance. Few ever travel in the heat of the day. They just don't do it. So this undoubtedly catches him by surprise, not only to have strangers moving through the area, but traveling at the hottest part of the day. Verse 2, when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them... He ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, Do as you have said. Now, if your Bible says Lord, capital L, that's a mistake. It should be small l there. The Revised Standard Version has a small l, and that's correct. This is Lord Adonai. He doesn't know who they are. This is a common greeting to someone who represents stature. So if it's a small l, it's Adonai, and this is what he does. He just bows to them, 
If you've been to Japan or you've seen people from the Japanese culture, they bow in homage when someone comes in. In this culture, they only bowed to someone who was of nobility, of stature. So apparently, something about these three men, even though they are immediate strangers coming into his presence, he knew right away these were men of stature. And he bows to them. And he says, let me serve you. Middle Eastern hospitality says, of all laws, the first one is hospitality. They raise it as a very high standard. And he's paying homage to them. And he says, I want to serve you. What you're seeing here is the arrival of the pre-incarnate Son of God. Before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, this is an arrival of Jesus on earth. And you're going to see this unfold as we move through the story. He's appearing as a human, accompanied as, with two other angels who are appearing as humans also. And Abram doesn't recognize them, but he wants to serve them. Now, in the desert, it gets to be, in the area where I was living, in the Sonora Desert, about 120 degrees daytime temperatures in the shade. You have to be in the shade. It will boil your brain. It is way too intense of a heat. So it's no wonder that we find his tent set up under the oak trees. And needless to say, that's where he's going to serve them as well. Now, in ancient times, they served and prepared bread immediately. It wasn't something that they could store like we have today. No preservatives. So he ran into his wife and he said, I want you to fix some bread. I want you to fix a lot of bread. God calls us to serve people in ways that we don't even begin to understand. And I hinge that on a verse in Hebrews. Have you ever read this verse before? Hebrews 13, 2 do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. That is an odd verse. Have you ever thought about that? That perhaps some strange situation in your life that you have no explanation for could have been a visitor from God? Scripture declares it. Some have entertained angels. This is kind of a reference back to Abram's situation and what's taking place here. Now, pick it up with me in verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour. If you, if you don't know what three measures is, this is 33 quarts of flour. Can you imagine how many loaves of bread they're going to make out of this? 33 quarts. Well, he does have a large household. Remember, he has at least 300 servants. But this is the heat of the day when they eat the biggest meal in the Middle East. So pick it up again. Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour. Knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Do you remember that Abraham is a very, very wealthy man? He has 300 servants at least to do his bidding. He could have given this responsibility in 120 degree weather to any of his servants to do this work. He chooses to do it himself. Do you also remember this guy's 99 years old, and he's running. He runs to his wife, hurry, do this. He runs to the herd, hurry, 
prepare this calf. He runs back to the angels. Why is the guy in such a hurry? He understands how important of visitors these are, but he doesn't yet understand that this is the Son of God. You're going to see that open up in just a moment. Verse 9, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. This is the first hint that he understands that this is somebody very special. Because we just learned last week that God changed the name of Sarai to Sarah. Remember that? Sarai, contentious one. Sarah, the princess. God said, no longer will you call her Sarai. You will now call her Sarah, the princess. Do you not think that maybe at that moment, Abraham's ears tingled a little bit? He called her Sarah. How could he know that? How could this stranger who just appeared in my camp know my wife's name is Sarah? Now that piques his attention. And the next thing he says confirms Abraham's suspicions. I will return to you at this time next year, and you're going to have a son. Then Abraham understands. Now remember, he's gotten little bits of information over 23 years. First, he's told he's going to be made a great nation and that all the world will be blessed through him. And then 11 years later, he's told that he's going to have a son, specifically by Sarah, not by his handmaid. And now, another set of time forward, another 12 years, and he understands it's revealed to him there is a specific timeline by which you're going to have this son, this time next year. Now, I, I referred to Yehovah just a little bit ago. I want you to get this name down so you really understand this, the way the Hebrews use this. Yehovah, self-existent or eternal. Jehovah, the name of God. You may have seen that many times over the years if you've grown up in church at all and seen that phrase used. The way the ancients used it is they removed every vowel in the word. So they removed the E. They removed the O. They removed the A. So it was Y-H-V-H. Yahweh. They wouldn't even say the name of God. And whenever they printed it, they just put the Lord because they thought it was profane to put down Yahweh, Yehovah. Yahweh. They knew that it took breath to enunciate that. The breath they associated with the breath of life of God. Yahweh. When he understands that this is Yehovah, the text of the entire conversation changes at this point. These are no longer strangers just eating food in his house. This is a personage that he doesn't comprehend. Watch how this unfolds. Verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. 
Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Sarah doesn't understand who's talking here. It doesn't click with her. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Verse 14, if you're a person who circles in your Bible, you want to remember this verse. Is anything too difficult for Yahovah? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? This is not Adonai. This is not Adonai. This is not just a visitor. The Son of God himself declares this. This is Jesus speaking, pre-incarnate. Is anything too difficult for me? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Beyond the door, Sarah's doing what any of us would have done. You see, in this culture, women were not allowed to associate with male visitors. And so she's inside the home doing dishes. The meal's been prepared and served, and they begin engaging in this conversation. And she's got her ear to the door, trying to hear what they're talking about. Now, she's doing the dishes, and she hears the commitment that this man has just made, the promise. And she looks at her 90-year-old body and does what anyone else would do. Yeah, right. She looks in the mirror and sees the wrinkles. It's not possible. And she laughs. She's been listening to everything. And then God says, even though she's made no sound at all, Sarah, I heard you laugh. And apparently at this point, she steps outside. I did not laugh. Sarah has realized that this one can read the thoughts of her heart. As easily as we read a book, God can read the thoughts on your heart. He's omniscient. He knows everything. She made no sound at all. And God says in response, Is anything too hard for Yehovah? I don't know if you make a habit of reading Scripture throughout the week when you're not in church on Sunday mornings. And so I try throughout the message to encourage you to read other passages throughout the week. I'm going to give you one this week that I would like to encourage you to read, maybe even yet this afternoon. You can read Jeremiah 32 later, but I want to read this passage to you, written by one of God's most renowned prophets in the Old Testament. Earthly speaking, having the least success of any church pastor you've ever heard of. He did not have one convert in his entire ministry. But yet God regarded him as one of his greatest prophets. Listen to what this great prophet wrote about your God. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Jehovah, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power 
and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you, who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Think of it. Think of the magnitude of the question. Is anything too hard for Yahovah? The creator, we spent 10 weeks studying Genesis, the creation of the earth, here in this church, starting back in January. Understanding that God was who he said he is. He unfolded the entire universe. And this same one who set the planet spinning stands before this 90-year-old barren woman and says, is anything too difficult for me? Too hard? You know, there's an interesting wordplay with that word in the Hebrew. Difficult or hard actually also means wonderful. Is anything too unimaginable for your God? You have to ask yourself that question in your life each week. When you think you've faced an obstacle, there is no way around. Your God says when you're walking in concert with him, there is nothing too wonderful for me. Now, the events of promise of the birth of Isaac quickly vanish as we move ahead. It's never referred to again. We come to verse 16, and the story completely turns on a dime. The men are done talking with Abraham at this point, and they rise up. Verse 16, Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was talking with them to send them off. It's very uh, customary if you've done any camping at all in your life. You know that when you set up your tents, you set it up on high ground. And Abraham, certainly practicing this same procedure because they were living a nomadic lifestyle, had his tent and that of all of his servants on high ground. And Scripture indicates very clearly that all they had to do was rise up and turn their head and look down at the valley and see Sodom. And just that easily, with that gesture, our attention is turned from this enormous promise to what we know is about to unfold. This God who says, nothing is impossible for me, is about to bring incredible judgment in such a way that here we are 4,000 years later still speaking of what unfolded in those 24 hours. Verse 17, the Lord said, Yahovah, this is not Adonai, the Lord, Yahovah, said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Verse 19, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring up Abraham what he has bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him and the Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave 
I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. When you see, I will go down, it occurs only three times in Scripture. This is when God is deciding to personally intercede. This happened at the Tower of Babel and the destruction and the disbursement of the people groups. God said, let us go down now. This happened when the children of Israel were held captive in Egypt. I will go down now and visit them. What this speaks to is God taking personal, intimate, active involvement in the affairs of man right in their presence. And that's why he states it the way he does. There is no need for God to visit Sodom. He is omniscient. He knows all. This is a paraphrase reference to God personally becoming deeply involved. And what it's demonstrating to us is that God as a judge, as the one who will judge all the earth, who will judge your life, says, I personally, before I carry out judgment, deal with an issue face to face. I look at it intimately, and then I render my judgment. That's what you see unfolding here. Now, we're not today going to get into the debate between Abraham and God, and it wasn't actually debate, but you'll learn about that next week when we look at the actual destruction of the city. But this is one thing that I found very interesting this week when I studied this, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and the outcry that came to him was not just because of the abomination of their lifestyle. Look with me at this passage up on the screen, Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this is God speaking. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. You remember the passage that you learned last week if you were here? That God called Abram and he said, Abram, walk before me and be perfect. What you begin to see unfolding in this passage here is an expansion of the ideas from chapter 17. In verse 19, God said, I have chosen him. Look up on the screen at this in verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Nowhere else in all of Genesis are we given a specific reason for why God called Abraham out except for this. I have chosen him. Why? So that he may command his children and his household after him. How? To keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Not to conquer kingdoms. Not to build empires. I called him apart so that he will command his children in the ways of God. It's no mystery that God would say 
Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do in Sodom? I am the judge of all the earth. If Abraham understands what God is about to do because people commit abominations before him, and he shares this with his servant Abraham, Abraham's responsibility then is to tell generations after him that they must walk rightly before God, that they must walk perfect before God, wholly dedicated. And that's what this passage is saying. I'm not going to hide it from Abraham because I've called him out to keep the way of the Lord. To who, though? Men in this room, to who? His children. To command his children and his household after him to walk blamelessly before God. I find it fascinating that it was their neglect of the poor and the needy. They were so focused on their careers, their abundant wealth. Do you know that the ancient Jewish writers actually wrote, it's not in Scripture, it's commentary from ancient Jewish writers, that they believe, they understand from examining historical documents at their time, that the people of Sodom had elected judges to burn at the stake individuals who would relieve the oppression of the poor and needy. They so much didn't want poor and needy people within their prosperous cities that they tortured people who would relieve them, who would give them aid and comfort. They were an abomination before God before, for mighty sins that we have understood before this. But also, clearly Scripture says, they abandoned truth and righteousness in meeting the needs of the poor and needy. And that allowed them to be so consumed with their own lifestyle, to be so consumed with their luxuries that they forgot about God and they moved off into unmentionable, unmentionable sins. What you're about to discover next week in the way that the wrath of God poured down upon them was because they were egregious before God. And they were set apart as an example to us. I remember when I lived in Arizona, I told you that I lived in the desert region, that there was um, a trip that a pastor of mine had made into New Mexico to a conference center, a place called Glorietta. And when our pastor came back from that conference setting that he had been at, he shared with us this story I'm about to tell you, true story. It seems unthinkable, but it happened. The Glorietta Conference Center is in northern New Mexico, and it belongs to the Southern Baptist Convention. And for all the pastors on the western side of the United States, from the Mississippi West, they would go to Glorietta once a year to take part in a pastor's conference. This particular conference had 1,200 pastors at it from all over the West, including the pastor of my church in Tucson. He said that each day, as they went to the main conference building to hear the keynote speaker for the day, every time they went to the building, there was a man sitting on a bench who was obviously homeless, a beggar, and he was working the crowd. He had a, a hat flipped over, a baseball hat in his hand. 
And his hair was unshampooed, long, beard grown out. He was really scraggly in grubby clothes. And every day, that man sat on the bench as these pastors streamed into this auditorium. And when they came out again, he was gone. Five days in a row, this took place. Over the course of the week, only five pastors stopped to sit down with that man and ask him about what was going on in the course of his life. On the fifth day of the conference, a very powerful communicator was talking to the crowd about the mercy of God. When up on the platform walked this beggar, and he peeled off his baseball hat, and he pulled off his beard, and he pulled off the wig, and it was one of their co-pastors. And together, these two men had staged this event to see if the people of God would actually live out what they claimed to live out. Needless to say, 1,195 pastors left that conference humiliated because they were not even carrying it out in their own life. They were so focused to get into the conference, to hear what the next speaker had to say, that they neglected it right in front of them. Fathers today in this room, men, whether you're fathers or not, we have such a huge responsibility to live out the righteousness of God in every single thing that we do, day by day, step by step, When that person has the broken down car in front of us, do we stop to help them? Are we on our way to our meeting and we cannot be late for it? How do you know that God hasn't sent that person into your life to bring you back on track again about what you're really here for? That's it. That's my admonition to all of us today. I have to do this for myself as well. I have to ask myself this question. Am I walking rightly, wholly dedicated before God? It's the question I ask of you. Are you walking rightly dedicated, wholly before God so that your family and all who are around you would say, there goes a man of God. I know it. I can tell by his focus. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for helping us to understand your word, and it's only because of the illumination of your spirit that there's actual application out of this text. Your spirit reveals things to us that we would not understand, and it appears as foolishness to the world. But you've given us these things that we would understand your nature and your character. That's our desire, Father, to know you better and to walk rightly before you. So, God, I ask for that for each of us in this room, not just the men, the women, the children, that we would be people who would be recognized as being solely dedicated to you. Father, we ask for this in humility because it is tough. But nonetheless, we ask for it because you are just and you are righteous and you call us to live this way. So give us the boldness and the courage to do so.
God, we ask for all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.